Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Today's podcast concerns the UN's continuing refusal to accept full responsibility for its egregious actions in causing the cholera epidemic in Haiti. After the calamitous earthquake on January 12, 2010, there were hundreds of thousands of people internally displaced in Haiti, with a high concentration of people without proper sanitation and clean water in camps prone to flooding, exacerbating an already fragile sanitation infrastructure. This environment was rife for the spread of cholera, but thankfully, the pathogen was never in Haiti. In October 2010, the UN Stabilization Mission in Haiti, or MINUTSA, brought in Nepalese troops without screening them before they left Nepal, albeit it was aware there was a recent cholera outbreak there and the carriers may present no symptoms. More egregiously, the UN base near Marebele disposed of its raw sewerage into the Atibonit River, Haiti's main water source, and continued to dispose fecal waste into Haitian rivers years after the outbreak spread. To this day, the UN has not accepted responsibility for its actions and the outbreak continues. It has infected one in seven Haitians and is now spreading to the Dominican Republic and Mexico. Under the 1946 Convention on the Privileges and Immunities of the UN, the UN is required to establish a relief process for private law claims, for instance in cases of straight tort and negligence by its personnel. The Status of Forces Agreement with Haiti also requires the UN to establish a Standing Claims Commission. However, the UN has refused to do so, and the UN has never done so in any of the states that has had peacekeeping missions. The Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti filed suit in the Southern District of New York claiming tort and negligence actions against the UN on behalf of Haitian and American residents, and regrettably, On August 18th of this year, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the lower court's dismissal of their claims upholding the UN's diplomatic immunity. On September 28, 2016, I spoke with Brian Kincannon, one of the lead counsels on the case and the executive director for the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti on these issues and more. Tragically, since that time, Hurricane Matthew has caused catastrophic devastation in Haiti, including severe flooding, which has caused cholera infections to rise. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Gravity. Well, thanks for having us on, Alexandra. It's nice to be with you. So I believe it's pretty indisputable that Minutza caused the epidemic in Haiti. May you please explicate a little bit how the UN caused the initial outbreak? It's been indisputable now for, for five years. There has not been any serious scientific disagreement. The cholera was first brought to Haiti in October of 2010. At that time, there was, uh, there's been a peacekeeping mission in Haiti. It's called MINUSTA that's been there since 2004. And there was a regular rotation of troops. And, and troops came from a country where there was a, a where cholera was, was, was raging. There was an epidemic. And they were deployed to a base in Haiti where the sewage was being discharged directly into Haiti's largest river system. And the first cases broke out. Um, about 100 meters or so downhill of the base, and the uh, then then from there there was a few dozen cases there, but then very quickly the it spread throughout a river delta downstream, and you very quickly started getting hundreds and then thousands of people killed uh, or sick and then killed. And the the epidemic has officially killed about a about 10,000 people, but there are some studies that indicate that it's it's uh, three times or more that, and well over a million people have been have been sick. The 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 proof that the UN 
was responsible first came just from the circumstances that it came uh that that it broke out just below the the base where 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 uh soldiers had been rotated cholera has never been recorded in haiti in history but then there was some microbiological um studies that showed that the cholera in Haiti was very similar to a cholera in Nepal where the soldiers were from. And a few months after that, there was genetic tests that showed that the, there was an exact genetic match between the cholera strain in Nepal and the cholera strain in Haiti. And at that point, that ended any serious discussion as to, as to who was responsible. And the discussion ever since has really been how to push the United Nations to, to act consistently with, with those scientific facts and its legal obligations. The Minutsa troops that were coming into Haiti in 2010 were coming into a country devastated by a catastrophic earthquake with hundreds and thousands of people internally displaced, high concentrations of people living in temporary shelters, prone to flooding with inadequate access to clean water and sanitation. Now, this was already a country with a weak sanitation infrastructure, a perfect environment for the spread of cholera, which the UN was indubitably aware and to, into this environment, we have the UN bring Nepalese troops in. We know, that, and they knew that cholera was endemic to Nepal, that at that time there was a recent outbreak in Nepal. Now, what did the UN do to effectively screen the DPKO soldiers coming into such a vulnerable environment? And what did the UN do to protect the people of Haiti? The UN did very little to protect people of Haiti. Cholera is generally known when it happens. And so the UN was aware that there was the, the cholera epidemic in Nepal. Um, the, the UN's own independent experts said that things could have been, that, that the transmission could have been stopped if they had provided um, antibiotics and some other basic uh, health treatment to the people coming from Nepal. And one estimate was that for a $2,000 investment, the UN could have prevented this, you know, this tens of thousands of people getting killed. And the UN also could have, could have made sure that the, the, that the sewage worked. When people bring cholera into the United States all every day, at least every week, we don't have cholera epidemics because we have a, a fairly good septic system. If the, if the UN had just made sure that its, that its septic system worked the way it was supposed to be and not piped waste directly into a river, then none of this would have happened. You would have had some people sick on their base and they would have been, been better and you would have had no other impact. But this was a, a base that was that it smelled so bad because of the sewage and there's some, some, some TV footage a couple of days after the, the outbreak started where people had to cover their, 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 their noses with handkerchiefs to get close to it. The local citizens had been, had been complaining for months about this discharge and, and the UN just never got around to fixing their system. A report came out this summer that said that problems with the UN waste disposal continued even up through 2015. So, so five years after the epidemic out, broke out, there was still some direct discharge from UN bases. There was still a failure to do basic maintenance on filters and other things that was creating risks of continued contamination of the Haitian environment. Right. So the situation we have here is the egregious behavior of the UN negligently bringing in infected troops by failing to properly screen them, A, and B, negligently and recklessly disposing of fecal waste at their base, causing the outbreak, and C, 
continuing to do so for years, knowing there was a mass epidemic of cholera and that they were only contributing to it. And of course, covering up uh, the fact that they initially caused the outbreak whilst denying responsibility and cloaking itself under the cover of diplomatic immunity. Now, I don't think anyone would posit that diplomatic immunity is not necessary to shield the UN from spurious and politically motivated cases, as well as possibly questions of political implications that may impede its vital functions. Uh, For instance, questions of strategy. But in cases like this, in cases of pure and extreme negligence, the UN is acting like any private party. I mean, I don't think anyone could argue that dumping sewage into a main waterway is a vital function of a UN peacekeeping mission. Exactly. And the UN, UN has never really tr- ex- tried to explain why they're not going to respond. Um, Philip Alston, who's the, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, issued a report um, that, that came out last month saying that their legal position was legally indefensible, morally unconscionable, and politically self-defeating. Their, the UN has not provided any serious basis on international. And it, it's clear that the UN has a legal obligation to compensate people harmed by its operations. There are some exceptions. So there's operational necessity. So during a a war um, or or military operations, the UN does not compensate for people injured during military operations. And there's probably an exception for political decisions, as you mentioned. But waste treatment is the type of thing that, that businesses and people all over the world every single day are dealing with. It's not something that is specific to the United Nations. And there is no legal justification for for the UN not applying its ordinary obligation to, to compensate the victims. What the UN has been claiming, so they haven't really seriously argued that this is not that the victims don't have the right to a remedy what they've been arguing is that nobody can make the un comply with its legal obligations so we filed a case in federal court in in the united states and and what the un said was that its immunity and this is under the the convention on the privileges and immunities of the un often called the general convention article 2 of that of that convention does give the UN protection from national courts. Now, there's very good reasons for that immunity. We don't have a problem with immunity as it's designed to work, but it's designed to work as a two-way street. The UN is given the very exceptional grant of, of protection from national courts for good reasons, but in return for that grant, the UN is obligated to provide an alternate mechanism of justice uh, for people alleging harm. And it, the UN does that every day. If, if, if I'm in a car accident in Haiti and the UN driver, I believe the UN driver is at fault, I can make a claim and the UN processes that claim in the ordinary course of events. They, but they just decided that, that they weren't going to process the, the cholera victim claims in the ordinary course of events <clears throat> without providing any, any legally cognizable explanation for that. Before you filed suit in the Southern District of New York, you first filed suit with the UN under the mechanism established for providing reparations under the General Convention and the Status of Forces Agreement with Haiti. Now, what was the response of the UN to your claim? So our original original complaint was that. We're saying, okay, look, immunity works. Immunity's enforced. We can't file a, a, a suit in Haiti or, or the US or anywhere else. We need to send it to the UN's claims department. And their response to that, it took them 15 months 
and it was a uh, two-page letter that really just had two sentences that were that were operative. It said that the claims were not receivable because they involved the policies and procedures of the United Nations. Now that is not a an exception to to the UN's legal obligations that is recognized anywhere. The UN has never really explained what that is the best that they've done is is they've they've made an analogy saying that the UN compensates for things like car accidents but doesn't compensate for things like wars um but it's clear that this is much more as you explained at the beginning this is much closer to a car accident it's the type of thing that ordinarily ordinary people and organizations do all the time than it is to a a war or something that only the UN the UN can do so the UN really never gave a very good explanation and and if you read the UN's response. It was from the legal department, but it was, and, and the UN has as, as exceptional lawyers in the legal department, but it was singularly unconvincing. It was pretty clear reading the letter that, that the lawyers knew that they did not have a, a solid argument, but they were just under instructions to, to provide some justification and they did the best they could, even if they didn't believe it. So it was only after the UN left Haitians absolutely no avenue for redress that you filed on behalf of Haitians who are American residents and or citizens in a U.S. court. So our argument to the U.S. courts was that, again, that immunity is a two-way street, that yes, the UN has this protection, but if it, it, it also has these, these obligations to provide this alternate mechanism, if it refuses to provide the alternate mechanisms, which are, which are required by Section 29 of the, of the General Convention, if it refuses to abide by its obligations, it then loses the ability to invoke the Section 2 immunity. Um, we, we, we've had, uh, we got a lot of support for that. We've had amicus curiae briefs from former UN officers, from, um, human rights groups, European scholars, international law scholars, constitutional law scholars, Haitian American groups. And, and it's also been, been supported by, uh, by Philip Alston's report that came out last month. Uh, but the, the U S district court, uh, rejected it and U S courts are, are fairly conservative. They're, they're very reluctant to, to bring in international law. And they are also in, in the domain of foreign policy. They are very um, deferential to the executive branch's interpretation. And in this case, the U S department of justice was arguing uh, on not, not technically representing the UN, but, but making the UN arguments that it was immune and the combination of, I think, judicial conservatism and deference to the executive branch uh, made the, led the court to say that, that it was not going to read beyond section two. It said, once you get to section two and it says immune, the courts aren't going to even look to see what else, what other obligations the, the UN has. And one of the things that was, was exciting about that was it was obviously extremely disappointing to lose that case. We heard uh, it was January of 2014 was when we, when we got that decision. We were disappointed, but we were also elated by the response in the court of public opinion. Because in this case, we're trying to win the lawsuit. We think we should win the lawsuit. And, but that is only one tool of many that we're, we're using to apply pressure on the UN to act consistent with, with its legal obligations. And one of the things that we found all along the way is that every time we lose on a, on the, on a legal claim, we end up winning fairly big in the court of public opinion. And when the, when the, the U S court 
And the same thing happened when the UN rejected our, our original complaints. Um, and when the U.S. court ruled against us, there was an outcry in the press, in among human rights advocates, even within the UN systems, because the way that the UN wins the technical legal victories is by refusing to accept the rule of law by saying basically it's not subject to any rule of law. And it's obviously problematic for the organization that is the preeminent promoter of human rights, the preeminent promoter of the rule of law to be then saying, oh no, the rule of law doesn't apply to us. And so we we are obviously deeply disappointed when we lose the legal battles and we're continuing to fight them because we think we should win. But we actually win by 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 losing and, and it leads to increased pressure on the UN. And that's really what's led to where we are today. And one of the best examples was on October 18th, we received the decision from the appeals court uh, rejecting our appeal of the district court's denial. And the same day the UN announced, okay, we're going to, we're going to take significant measures to respond to this. So the, they knew that the pressure from, from us, from their winning the case was going to be so great that they did need to respond uh, and they did need to start giving the victims justice. The court of public opinion can definitely uh, be much more forceful than uh, success merely in the court of law. I believe it was the great attorney Clarence Darrow that said, and I'm paraphrasing that, uh, only lost causes, oh no, the only causes we're fighting for are lost causes. But anyway, uh, here we can definitely see that the court case brought attention to the injustice that was happening in Haiti and that the UN certainly uh, felt this pressure because, as you mentioned, it was the following day uh, that General, that Secretary General Ban Ki-moon issued his statement. Now, his statement referred to moral responsibility only, and he said that the UN was working to intensify support to eliminate the epidemic in Haiti but there was no mention of reparations uh, or taking on any full responsibility for causing the outbreak. Uh, Now, how do you understand the UN's intentions behind this quite nebulous and guarded statement, which has been touted in the press as the UN's acceptance of responsibility for the epidemic? They haven't exactly accepted responsibility. And, And it was pretty clear that the Secretary General's announcement was cleared through lawyers who are very wary of the UN doing anything that could have legal implications, which is, you know, I think is deeply problematic. Again, this is the UN that is supposed to be promoting the idea that people have legal obligations. But the, 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 the Secretary General said that the UN was involved in the introduction of cholera to Haiti, not that it's, that it's responsible, um, but that it is a, a step ahead of what it had been willing to do before. And we're looking forward to the UN taking the next step and, and accepting full responsibility. The, and, and the UN has not yet said it will take whatever it takes to eradicate cholera. It said significant measures. And that's one of the, the, the battles that's being fought now is to what extent, whether the UN is really going to do what is, what, whatever it takes or whether it's going to take something far short of that and say, oh, that's all the money we could raise. Because the UN's position now is, yeah, we're going to do something, but we don't have you know, a bank account we can draw on to do this. We're going to have to raise the money. And if the UN 
makes a limited effort to raise that money, it will have limited returns and, and it will not be able to do something that, that, that either complies with legal obligations or actually eradicates cholera. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do is to apply pressure to make sure that, that, that justice is done. On the individual compensation, um, the UN has, has not committed to, to full individual compensation as justice would require, but it, it has said it will take actions to provide assistance to the victims. And again, the details of that have not been set out. The UN has said that it's going to announce the details of its plan in October. Our guess is that that, that will not be the final plan. The UN is not going to be able to come up with a final plan by then, but we're hoping that it will that it will announce pretty significant measures and, and a plan for, for going forward that will arrive at the level of justice. So the UN is, is, is seriously considering how it's going to do some kind of support to individuals. We're fairly confident right now that the UN has not, is not at the point where it's, it's going to do something that really is consistent with its legal obligations. And that's one of the, one of the fights that we're, we're, we're involved in is to apply pressure so that the UN, in the words of Philip Alston, honors its commitment to the rule of law. So in January, we're going to have a new secretary general. And unfortunately, the Den contenders a couple of months ago were asked whether they would accept full responsibility for the outbreak in Haiti. And only one hand went up. <laughs> well, actually, maybe Vukjeramic raised his hand because it seemed as if he half raised his hand. But, but in any case, the one person we know for sure raised her hand was Cristina Figueres. And unfortunately, she's no longer a contender in the race. Um, and additionally, when Helen Clark was asked why she didn't raise her hand, she made a very guarded statement noting uh, your ongoing court case. And what's even more unfortunate is that Ms. Figueres, <laughs> even though she said she would accept full responsibility, also said that she would not pay reparations to the victims. However, with increasing public pressure on the UN to rectify its egregious wrongs in Haiti and do right by the people, how do you think the next Secretary General will act in this ongoing crisis? Well, I think, I think what happened in that debate and its subsequent debate is an example of how the lawyers are calling the shots in the sense that, the, that everybody's afraid that the lawyer, they're going to do something that the lawyers are going to yell at them for. And I was a corporate lawyer before I was a human rights lawyer, and I understand why companies are are concerned about accepting liability and why you might not acknowledge the truth in certain situations. But I think it's deeply problematic that it's the UN doing this. The UN won't say things that it knows to be true, that it's known to be true for five years because a lawyer's concerned that it, that, that may force the UN to actually comply with its legal responsibilities. But in terms of both this secretary general, we think that there is an opportunity. The secretary general uh, has realized that that cholera is now a big part of his legacy, that if he does not take significant measures between now and the end of his term in, on January 1st, that that he will be left with, when history writes writes the, 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 the account of his of his uh, tenure, that cholera is going to play a big role. He's he's, he's, he is working hard to try to uh, make that less of a negative and, and hopefully a positive as the UN responds. It's impossible to fix the problem between now and January. So the next secretary general is going to have to step up and take some leadership. Um, from our point of view, you know, we're not predicting which 
secretary general is going to do what and what they're all disposed to do. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the people who, who were most outspoken in favor of justice for the victims um, are no longer in the in the process. And this, of course, is a highly democratic, highly undemocratic process where where the secretary general is in large part chosen by the permanent members of, of, of the Security Council. And so that's going to obviously the interests of the five permanent members are going to take precedence over a broader democratic sense of priorities. And so we're not going to, you know, we, we can't expect that someone's going to come in on a platform of, of uh, agreeing to, to responding justly. But we think that the next secretary general, as the current secretary general, will do what he or possibly she, um, well, that's re- looking decreasingly likely, but they will do what they are forced to do. And so the reason why uh, Secretary General Bond is stepping up is that there's been pressure from within inside the UN system, from member states, from civil society, from victims on the ground in Haiti, uh, and that's what's forcing him to act. And we are committed to working with all the other people who have been applying pressure so far to continue that pressure under the next administration. So it's going to be something that the next secretary general cannot ignore and will be forced by public opinion to to respond to. Now, we've been talking about the UN's assertion of diplomatic immunity respecting the cholera outbreak in Haiti, but this issue is much, much broader because the UN has asserted diplomatic immunity time and time again with respect to non-political decisions of its peacekeeping forces and for, uh, you know, reckless, negligent, even criminal actions, including rape. In fact, the UN troops have committed so much rape that the UN intranet had to add a new acronym, SCA, to stand for sexual, sexual exploitation and abuse. I remember the subject of one Security Council meeting being labeled as DPKO, DRC, SCA, referring to sexual exploitation and abuse of peacekeeping officers in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which I suppose makes it more palatable to work with. Each time the UN peacekeeping missions go into a country, and of course the UN never does so when everything is stable in a country, but it does so when countries are in crisis and the people are at their most vulnerable, they come into a country under the charter, but also under a status of forces agreement with each country concerned. Now, I believe that in 89, the then Secretary General had requested that a model status of forces agreement be drafted and that uh, one was drafted in 1990 and that this model agreement has pretty much been used without any substantive changes uh, 32 times. In fact, every time that the UN has uh, since then been been in a country, uh, including the one with Haiti, and that under these agreements, the UN has to set up a standing claims commission for victims of its malfeasance so that victims that cannot sue the UN in their national courts still have some avenue of redress. Now, the UN has never, ever, ever performed its obligation under these agreements. May you explicate a little bit more, please, about the UN's obligations under these agreements, and in particular, its obligations under its agreement with Haiti? So under Haiti's status of forces agreement, there's something called a standing claims commission. And, and so for any complaints against the UN, they, they first go to the claims unit of the, of the UN mission. And if that, that cannot be resolved, then there's supposed to be what's called a standing claims commission. And that is set up by the UN chooses a person, the host 
government chooses a person and those two collectively choose a third person and do what's similar to an arbitration panel. Now, there's not a lot of detail about how that would actually operate because it's never been implemented in Haiti, as you mentioned. It's also never been implemented in the history of peacekeeping. And our understanding is that a similar commission has been in place in all status of forces agreements for for the last 50 years, but has never actually been implemented, which obviously points to to an accountability gap, as do the cases of uh, sexual assault and abuse. There's a, there's a wrinkle in, in those cases. So with any time that there is a, an allegation against a soldier, the country that deployed that soldier has exclusive jurisdiction for criminal proceedings. So, um, so if a, a soldier from, from country A is accused of doing a rape, <clears throat> country A is supposed to do a court-martial, and the UN doesn't. UN itself does not have the authority to, to do any trial. But one of the things that the UN does have the authority to do is to force country A to make sure that it has a transparent, fair um, trial of those charges, which it has systematically not been doing. Uh, and, and the the, the, the rapes in the, in, the, in the Central African Republic. Also, the same thing has happened in Haiti and uh, in, in many other places are, are symptoms of a, of a broader accountability problem. The, just as the sewage in Haiti is a symptom of a broader problem, there's also, by the UN's own accounting, there are problems with the sewage in, in many other peacekeeping countries throughout the world. And to us, this is looking like this is this explains why accountability is important. As long as the UN can't be held to account for for adequately uh, supervising its soldiers so that they're not committing rapes or that they're so to make sure they're punished if they are, as long as the UN feels it has no consequences for dumping raw sewage into the environments of, of of vulnerable countries, it's going to happen. And so, what we're fighting for in this caller case but also through our work on, on sexual um, exploitation and abuse is to force the UN to provide effective accountability mechanisms um, for, for people in, in harmed by its, by its operations in the vulnerable countries that peacekeeping operations are, are, um, are held. And so where this will have an impact, obviously, it will reduce the sexual exploitation and abuse if there's consequences to that. Um, obviously, it will increase the attention to to sewage systems. You know, one one small step forward was when the the Mali mission was deployed, and I believe that was in 2013. That was the was the first mission started after the Haiti's cholera epidemic. And it also had, as part of its mandate, for the first time ever, it had an environmental <clears throat> mandate along with its with its uh, other peacekeeping mandate. And so the UN is slowly recognizing that <clears throat> it needs to do better on sanitation and sexual assault and abuse, but it's not going to ever do a good job of that unless individual victims have the right to pursue justice. I mean, that's if you look at in the United States, police brutality, if you look at workplace harassment, I mean, a whole range of, 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 of social ills. It's, it's an individual's right of action that is driving a reduction of harmful behavior. And the UN is no different than an employee, a government, a police force in, in the U.S. or Haiti or any other country, unless it's subject to, to accountability, it's not going to make effective reforms. 
I vehemently agree with you. Uh, earlier, I believe you quoted Philip Alston uh, in his soon-to-be-released report, and he had said that uh, the UN's denial is politically self-defeating. Now, I think he's really touched on the crux of the issue here because if the UN is meant to be the pinnacle of international cooperation, the body that sends international peacekeeping missions around the world, and now if they're if peacekeeping missions are in a country, that means things are not dandy. That means the country's in crisis. The people are vulnerable, um, as I've mentioned before, and you've mentioned before too. And, uh, and here the UN is coming in as a protector on behalf of the nations of the world, and it believes that it's not accountable for any of its actions, that it can act with utter impunity. Now, how is the UN, the organization that is meant to progress respect for and enforcement for human rights, meant to be respected and heeded when it is itself a human rights abuser? In Haiti, it violated several rights of the Haitian population. It violated the right to water. It violated the right to health. It violated the right to life. It violated the right to relief. Now, how is the UN meant to progress international human rights law if it violates human rights and if it believes that it's not accountable for any of its human rights violations? I'll give you a personal example of, of, of that, that illustrates that, that excellent point. I first got to Haiti uh, in 1995 as a uh, UN volunteer. I was a human rights officer. And what we were trying to do, this was a transitional system we, situation where Haiti had had a, a military dictatorship for a few years and, and the UN was there as part of trying to establish the rule of law and to do this transition, transition from dictatorship to democracy. And one of my main jobs was, was to go around and talk to judges, police, uh, community leaders, average citizens, and make the case for the rule of law. And my basic argument was that, you know, that many people get some individual advantage from, you know, from corruption and inefficiency and things like that, but that in the aggregate, it, it creates a social problem that's much, that, that, that is much worse than the sum of the benefits from the individuals. And so I was just telling people, look, you need to forego whatever advantage you get from, from a bribe or if it's a police officer from the ability to whatever advantage you think you can get from torturing people you arrest. Um, because we need to establish the rule of law. And once you establish the rule of law, it's better for everybody. It, you know, increases the, it increases stability. It allows better economic development, more personal security, everything. But it's really you're making this collective argument and, and asking people to make perhaps personal sacrifices for the common good that will eventually come back to them. Um, one of the things that when I made that argument, people would say, well, look, you're from the United States, and they would pick some part of U.S. policy that, that, was not, that they felt was not uh, consistent with 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 the rule of law. And I would have to respond to that as an American. I would say, you know, if I did, if I agreed that was problematic, I would have to agree. And, and if, I, if I could defend it, I would. Um, but one of the things that you, that's going to happen today is there's going to be someone with a UN uniform going in and telling police officers that they can't make an illegal arrest, even if it's going to, you know, even if they think it's going to help fight crime because they need to obey the rule of law. They're going to tell judges they can't be taking bribes. And, and the, the judges 
and the police, they're going to be looking at that UN insignia on, on the person's baseball cap, and they're going to be saying, how can you possibly be telling me this from an organization that refuses to accept the rule of law? And so it's, it, it makes that person's efforts and the money used to support that trainer's efforts completely wasted because they're not going to convince Haitians to accept the rule of law coming from an organization that is so obviously flouting it. And on the bigger picture, uh, you know, we've cert- this has been mentioned from letters from the members of the U.S. Congress. And the U.S. Congress uh, uh, contributes about a third of, of, of peacekeeping budgets. And, and they, they, they've raised the issue of, well, why are we sending hundreds of millions of dollars of our taxpayers' money to promote the, to the UN to help it promote the rule of law when the UN refuses to accept the rule of law itself and undermines the rule of law by refusing to accept that? And I think to, that's a large extent part of why the UN is, is, uh, is responding. That's, I think, part of why uh, Philip Alston said it was politically self-defeating, and uh, where we we think that is a big part of the pressure, the fact that the UN is being called on its hypocrisy, that it's undermining its own case for funding, uh, that that is contributing to the UN's realization after after six years that it really does need to respond in, in, a, in a way that, that honors its um, commitment to human rights. Now I'd like to move on to some of the legal issues you sued the UN in the Southern District of New York um, on various tort and negligence claims for its egregious actions in Haiti. And the UN never once appeared in the matter, but it was the US as a person of interest that argued on behalf of the UN that it had diplomatic immunity and that the case should be dismissed. Now, unfortunately, very regrettably, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals upheld diplomatic immunity and... Uh, what I found very interesting about this decision was that was that it refused to address your argument that the UN's material breach of its obligations under Article 29 to set up an avenue for redress for victims of its personnel's actions, private law actions, uh, denied it immunity under Article 22. Now, this makes perfect sense to me. You can't, on the one hand, breach a material obligation in a contract and then claim protection, which solely arises from the contract which you materially breached. But the court diplomatically did not have to address this argument because it found that individual plaintiffs did not have standing to sue for a breach of treaty obligations, but only affected member states. So I suppose in this instance, only Haiti, But I believe that under international human rights law and international customary law, that individuals do have standing to sue for violations of their human rights and that the that the UN is bound by this. Yeah, our our argument was was based to a large extent on on international human rights law. I mean, part of what the court did was was reject that was to was to say we're not going to look at at the broader picture. We're not going to look at human rights standards that just under, under the, under U S law that only parties to treaties can enforce a treaty provision. And that the, the parties here are, are the U S government in Haiti and the UN and other countries. Um, and, and they were not willing to, to look any further. And part of what we were saying is we're not, trying to enforce a treaty. We're just trying to say that the UN 
cannot invoke the treaty in, in, in the court. Um, the, 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 the appeals court rejected that argument. A big part of it, again, was was its deference to the executive branch. And under the U.S. system, the executive branch is given um, is given priority in terms of in terms of international affairs and and both the legislative and judicial branches are are typically fairly deferential to that we we you know we knew going in that that us courts are tend to be judicially conservative tend to be um particularly reluctant to accept international law if 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 they feel that there's a there's that that domestic law says something else um, we we filed in U.S. courts for a few reasons. One, the U.N. is there, is in New York. Um, it was easier to get Haitian plaintiffs who lived in the U.S. and had a connection to New York or, or the U.S., but that also either had call or had close family members. But in terms of the choice of law, um, we we think that a European country, one subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, would be much more um, more advantageous for us, and that's one of the things that we're looking at. So right now we're we're making an evaluation as to whether we're going to appeal our loss at the appeals court to the U.S. Supreme Court, but we're also looking at perhaps filing a lawsuit in Haiti, but also filing a lawsuit in a European court because the European Court uh, of Human Rights has been very clear. Um, in saying that if if an international organization does not comply with its obligation to provide alternate mechanisms, that it it cannot uh, it can be prevented from invoking its immunity. Now it's never quite done it in, in against the UN. It's always been against other international organizations, and in the UN cases kind of found a way of not having that rule apply. Um, but we're fairly confident that 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 that, that this could be the that the rule does apply to the UN, and and that this could be the case where the European Court is 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 forced to say yes, we're going to um, we're going to prevent the UN from from invoking its its immunity. Um, and so there's you know this is we've lost in, in the appeals court. There's still opportunities in the U.S., but there's also opportunities elsewhere where the law is more. Uh, is more advantageous and, and is more quick to apply, to impose obligations on international organizations. Would you consider respecting the fact that Haiti has not done so and doesn't seem like it would do so, taking your claims to the International Court of Justice because it seems its jurisprudence may be more favorable. It has recognized in an advisory opinion, I believe uh, in the 70s, that a denial of human rights is a flagrant violation of the purposes and principles of the Charter. Uh, that was in legal consequences for states of the continued presence of South Africa in Namibia. You may have a standing issue, but you may overcome it. Uh, and apart from this, you would have the issue in front of the court of public opinion to hopefully impose more pressure on the UN and bring to the fore uh, the injustice that is happening. Now, do you think you will take this claim to the ICJ? Well, our research shows that we can't, that we, you know, we don't have... Um as individual plaintiffs, we can't. One of the things that, that, that one, another interesting development is that the government of Haiti until last Friday had never asked the UN to respond justly. Um, in part that the president of Haiti up until February of 2016, um, had been, 
more or less installed by the international community and was did not have a strong political base and 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 was was mostly held in power by his relationships with the UN, the United States, and other members of the international community, and as a result, was very reluctant to 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 pick a fight over this issue. And in fact, long after the UN stopped seriously disputing that it had brought cholera to Haiti, the Haitian government would actually would actually say that there was no proof, which was clearly untrue. And, and, and obviously the Haitian government knew, but knew it was untrue, but they felt compelled to take that position. Um, on Friday, Haiti's president, uh, an interim president, Jocelyn Prevert, uh, addressed the General Assembly and, and called for, for reparations, um, called for infrastructure and for the UN to take responsibility. His speech was a little bit, a little bit, um, a little bit subtle the way he made the arguments. It was not, it was not uh, as clear as we would have liked, but it's a strong step in the right direction. Um, Haiti's in the midst of, a, of an electoral session, and you could have a new president in, in February who could take that a step further. And so with a Haitian government that is willing to, to, uh, to, to, to push the UN to take its legal responsibilities, Lots of things open up, including more public pressure, including more member state action at the UN, but also potentially something at the at the International Court of Justice. But one of the things for now, it appears that we've more or less won the liability that the UN is conceding that it that it's that it's at fault. And so the only real issue right now is whether the UN is going to come up with the with the means to to fully take responsibility or not. And so my guess is that we will not need to go to the, to the, to the, uh, to the ICJ, uh, that it's more going to be just political pressure to push the UN to, to, uh, to contribute the money and other things it needs to, to honor its commitment to human rights. I think the standing issue is highly problematic because the countries that the UN goes into well, as you've mentioned, Haiti is a perfect example because it's been effectively complicit with the UN's malfeasance by not bringing any claims or challenging their actions. And I believe the reason is that it's so dependent on the UN that it feels impelled to stand by it. And that would be the state of all the other countries that the UN goes into because when the UN goes into a country, when the peacekeeping missions are there, uh, the country is obviously in a state of crisis. Otherwise, the peacekeeping mission wouldn't be there. So the governments are weak. And it's perfidious to say there's accountability if only the member states that are so dependent on the UN can hold it to account. Additionally, as we're developing international human rights law, which protects the rights of individuals and not states, there's a claim for expanding standing to individuals. The time is ripe, I believe. Do you think legal organizations are going to be looking into this and filing such claims? I think the, the Haiti experience demonstrates that is exactly right. If you look at Haiti, any, any country, there, there isn't a peacekeeping mission in Liechtenstein. Um, peacekeeping missions go to places that, have, that are, by definition, highly vulnerable. They're, they're, they're vulnerable from a security standpoint, and uh, that's obviously a big deal. If you're the president of a country, your police and armed forces can't maintain order. You're dependent on, on the UN for the most basic operation of your sovereignty, which is you know, maintaining control of the country. 
And but in addition to that, in, in a typical country where the peace where peacekeepers are deployed, the UN is also UNDP and the Food and Agriculture Organization and UNICEF and other UN agencies are fulfilling a broad range of basic government functions. And that you really can't you can't exist as a government without the UN. If the UN pulls up out of most most countries where, where where there's peacekeeping operations, if they just leave, the government's going to fall or fail, or, or at least be uh, there's going to be significant misery imposed on on those countries. Um, and so there is no real meaningful choice that the, the yeah, that the governments have in terms of whether to pursue their citizens' legal rights. Which is why I completely agree with you that there needs to be some kind of individual mechanism for justice. And you know, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, certainly from the U.S. perspective. It, it, it's going to be hard to overcome the U.S. courts' concerns about standing. Um, and especially, we never really got to this, but the courts are not going to be really excited about, about U.S. courts deciding over the rights of Haitians with respect to a mission in Haiti or other poor countries. They're just going to be very wary of getting involved in something where they have such little context. But I think that, that, that those, the mechanisms actually exist Within the UN system, they just need to be implemented. So the claims unit needs to needs to meaningfully pursue claims like the cholera victims' claims, claims of paternity for women who are having have kids by peacekeepers, claims of sexual assault, um, and they need to ensure that the both on the civil side that there is a meaningful right of action by the victim, and that there is a meaningful prosecution of the. Of the, of the perpetrators. And there are actually mechanisms for all these. They just need to be implemented. The UN needs to be judged on its accountability. Um, you know, if you look at peacekeeping missions right now, that is not one of the primary means of, of evaluating whether the mission is successful, whether leaders do a good job or not. And that needs to be part of the conversation at all levels. How are we doing in terms of demonstrating that we believe in the rule of law? How are we doing to reduce the harm to, to vulnerable populations? And saying, oh, this, this uh, Standing Claims Commission, which has never been implemented, is a meaningful safeguard is, of course, ludicrous. And, and, and what you need to do is to have meaningful rights of private action. I'd like to move on now from discussing the accountability of the UN in Haiti to discussing the accountability of foreign NGOs in Haiti. After the earthquake, numerous NGOs set up shop in Haiti and they've been performing uh, many public services since the earthquake. And uh, there are so many NGOs in Haiti per capita. In fact, more NGOs in Haiti per capita than anywhere else in the world that has been termed the Republic of NGOs. Now, there was a ProPublica investigation that showed that the Red Cross received 500 million donations for its claim to build permanent housing and that out of this money, it ended up building solely six permanent houses. And one of the major reasons it did this was because it had extremely high overhead. It didn't have the in-house specialization for what it needed to do and it contracted out services to foreign contractors, which cost a lot of money. Now, this high overhead has been a problem across the board with foreign NGOs. And so the the question becomes, if we don't want to give money to governments because we fear, well, we're donating and we want our money to go to the people and services to the people and we fear that these governments are corrupt and there were allegations of corruption aimed at the Haitian government for squandering 
uh, allegedly squandering uh, money that it had received in aid uh, before. But, um, you know, now we have this high overhead issue. And then the other issue is that, in effect, we're forming a post-colonial government by having foreign NGOs direct the policies from of, of what should happen in Haiti from the boardrooms in you know in New York and Paris and, and and not the people on the ground. For if foreign NGOs are directing policy and not elected governments, we're effectively disenfranchising the local people when we're trying to help. Yeah, Haitians certainly see it this way. They they jokingly call their country the Republic of NGOs because you have so many. NGOs fulfilling basic government services. And, you know, it's not inherently problematic that an NGO where there is a great need like healthcare or, or, or nutrition, that an NGO steps up to, to save lives or, or reduce misery. The problem is, is that is a couple that one, the NGOs are, are consciously displacing the government and, and in the sense, perpetuating their own power um, and second, that they're they're acting in a way that that's uh, unaccountable. Both problems have been problems uh, throughout the 21 years that I've been involved in Haiti, but the earthquake brought them into particular focus. And one of the things we did um, a week after the earthquake, we actually filed a process with the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, along with the Robert F. Kennedy uh, Memorial Human Rights Center and and NYU Law School, because we knew that there was going to be uh, a, a great unaccountable response, and we are trying to to um, push NGOs to to do a rights-based response. And the elements of rights-based response are accountability to the to, to the people, transparency, having concrete results, and and from our, our perspective, most important is involving Haitians in the planning and execution and evaluation of all projects. Um, those did not happen. One of the things that was that was raised and is always raised is is the issue of government accountability. Uh, and there's this perception that the Haitian government is, is is corrupt. There's a lot to that perception, and and we spend a lot of our efforts in making the Haitian government more accountable. But if you look at the earthquake funds less than 10% of the earthquake funds actually got to the Haitian government. Most went around it to NGOs that were completely unaccountable. And if you look at the results, it's hard to kind of trace and say, okay, this dollar was wasted, this dollar was wasted, because no one can figure out where the dollars went. And that involved, that includes both, both um, NGOs and governments, um, that you just cannot follow the money. You can look, as you look at you know, the Red Cross was one example, but there's a million other examples. You look at how much money came in and what the results are, and there's obviously a huge gap in terms of the money that came in and, and the results on the ground in Haiti. And and our, you know, as human rights lawyers, we look at this through a human rights lens, and and we see this as a failure to to apply the human rights based approach. There was lots of money that was very spent with very good intentions, but it was implementing plans that were set up in you know in New York or Miami or Paris and did not survive contact with Haitian reality. And I can tell you from example from someone who's living in Boston and I come up with lots of great ideas on what we can do in Haiti and uh, my fortunately my Haitian colleagues call me and say, no, that's not gonna work because of X, Y, Z reason. And they're always right. 
Um, you know, you cannot think of no matter how smart and how caring and how well financed you are, you can't think of something that's going to work in Haiti unless you're involved in Haitians in the ground on all aspects of it. And, and many NGOs didn't. They parachuted, you know, smart, committed experts without Haiti experience and without the ability to integrate the community. And they failed in, in a very predictable way. Um, but also there was no transparency. Um, you, you still cannot follow the money, either governmental or non-governmental. Um, there was not, there was a, if you look at the way people were raising money, they were raising money on the misery, not on their results. And there was not attention to having results. And to the extent that there were results, it was non-sustainable results. So people were fed, which, you know, it, in general, if someone's hungry, it's good giving them food. But, but the food aid, for example, ended up hurting farmers because Haiti, the farmers were not hurt by the earthquake. And then there was, there was tons and tons thousands of tons of food was brought into Haiti and given out feeding people, which was great, but it also put Haitian farmers out of business, which decreased the, the ability of the country to sustainably feed itself. Same thing with medical. There was lots of very dedicated people came in and volunteered and, and provided health services, saving lots of people's lives, but they also displaced Haitian doctors that forced Haitian doctors to emigrate to, to North America or other places to get jobs. It closed, it forced hospitals to close down because people were getting the free care. So they weren't, they weren't going to the paid. Now there's no reason that the international community couldn't have said, okay, we're going to hire Haitian doctors and nurses. We're going to, we're going to, instead of flying down our own inflatable hospital, we're going to use this, we're going to rent this, you know, this, this brick and mortar hospital. Um, But because the, you know, the incentives were, were, were distorting where, you know, it looks good on your, on your fundraising to say, we built this inflatable, we trucked in this inflatable hospital. That's what gets done rather than an examination of what well, would have been, have been more efficient and more sustainable to rent the Haitian hospital. So in looking at what happened in Haiti, uh, both with respect to the UN's egregious negligence and uh, with respect to the extremely high overhead and lack of specialization of foreign NGOs in Haiti, what, what best practices can we take in order to apply these when there's a crisis like this in other countries? Well, I think in terms of best practices, you know, they were there before, before the earthquake. And when we when we filed our, our, our procedure with the Inter-American Commission, it wasn't that we, you know, made this up because we were so smart. It was we knew what had happened to the with the Asian tsunami a few years before that, and what had happened in Haiti before that, and what people had been denouncing. And there are there there are best practices. There's the sphere principles. There's you know there is a body of work on what a what a human rights approach means. Um, those practices are out there. What needs to be done is that people need to be compelled to to respect them. Uh, there was an interesting survey done by by um, New York University Law School uh, just after the earthquake where they they did a survey of people involved in Haiti about whether they're they're applying the human rights approach. And when you ask them questions like, you know, are you doing a human rights approach? Are you accountable to the Haitian people? Are you transparent? Everybody would say yes. When you ask them more detailed uh, questions like is your financial information available to anybody who can actually call you on your transparency? You know, have you met with, with a Haitian about the design of this project in the last week? All those questions were no. And so you had this gap where people were at least recognizing 
the importance of, 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 of a human rights based approach, but at the practical level, they were not they were not actually uh, acting consistently with that recognition. And, and I think what needs to happen is there needs to be more, uh, more accountability pushing these organizations. And I think the accountability can happen through, you know, the international systems, UN guided, guided uh, processes that are putting out sphere principles and best practices and things like that. But I think there also needs to be accountability in the press. And, I, and, and the, the Red Cross example, I think, is a pretty good one. You know, just the fact that ProPublica and others had done this investigation and had gotten that, uh, that out in a very public way, that's an incentive for, for um, NGOs in the future to act more consistently with with, with the basic principles. Uh, but again, I think what needs to happen is <clears throat> at, at the base is the Haitian people or, or the people who were uh, in, in any country that is hosting a massive disaster response. Uh, they need to be empowered to have their complaints get out there. And throughout history, I'm sure there's been complaints every time that, that you've had this uh, NGOs coming in and, and acting in an unaccountable way, but those just don't get anywhere because it's done by people who are disempowered, who don't have access to the global media. But I think that this whole cholera case actually shows how things can be different. Um, one of the things that, that one of the reasons for, for the success of the cholera case is that, that it's, it's being advanced by this, what we call the cholera justice network. And it's, it's non-hierarchical. It's not, it's not even formal structure. But it's it's what we call the, the the accumulation of all the different individuals and organizations that are working to advance a just response to the cholera epidemic. And the way that this network works would not have been possible 10 years ago. Um, it works through social media. It works through kind of networking tactics that have developed over the last few years. And it's able to get information directly from from poor rural Haiti to the UN Security Council in a way that was not possible a decade ago. And I think what, what we need to think of as advocates is to be ready for that to happen the next time there is a humanitarian um, disaster with a response. As advocates, we need to figure out, okay, how are we going to empower the people on the ground to make their complaints known in an effective way? How can we help them influence decisions that are being made in Paris or London or New York or Toronto? Um, and I think in the end, that's what's going to change. It's not going to change because someone in a, you know, in a conference room in, in, at the UN in New York decides this is what we need to do. It's going, that change is going to be driven by, by people on the ground in countries like Haiti with the support of, of people outside of, of the country like Haiti that are, that, are, that are willing to help amplify those voices and get them to where they can make a difference. Yes, I completely agree. That was very insightful. Thank you. When we're aiding a country and a people, we need to ensure that we're not effectively disenfranchising them by imposing policies from above that A, may not work on the ground and B, do not have the people's involvement and consent, particularly because when foreign NGOs do go into a country in crisis, the people are at their most vulnerable. Um, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate your insight on the legal and political questions respecting the UN's egregious actions in Haiti as as uh, well as the role of diplomatic immunity and uh, best practices for foreign NGOs. Uh, your organization has been pivotal in fighting for the rights of Haitians and in having the UN uh, recently accept uh, well, albeit tepid responsibility 
the most that it has done so far and you're continuing to fight zealously in and out of the courtroom to impose pressure on the UN to have the UN account for its egregious actions in Haiti. Well, thank you, Alexander. It's been great talking to you and it's great participating with Gravity. found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.